and welcome to another episode of Bookends, the podcast for writers and book lovers. Andrea Eames is my guest today, and she has a most impressive writing CV. She published her first book, aged 18, in her native Zimbabwe, and is the author of two novels, The Cry of the Go-Away Bird, which was released in 2011, and her most recent novel, The White Shadow, which was shortlisted for the prestigious Dylan Thomas Prize this year, and she's only 27. The White Shadow is a novel narrated by Tanashi, a young Shona boy living in a small village in rural Zimbabwe. The guerrilla war of the late 1960s haunts the bushlands, but it only infrequently affects his quiet life, school, swimming in the river, playing with the other kids on the copy. When his younger sister Hajvane is born, Tanashi knows at once that there is something special about her. Their life in the village, once disturbed only by the occasional visits of his successful uncle and city cousin Abel, now becomes embroiled in the dual forces of the Shona spirit world and the political turmoil of the nation. As Tanashi, Hajvane and Abel grow older, their destinies entangle in ways they never expected. Tanashi is prepared to follow his sister anywhere, but how far can he go to keep her safe when the forces threatening her are so much darker and more sinister than he suspected. Andrea's writing is intelligent and assured, but with such a magical quality about her that absolutely captivates as she writes to understand the very complex, loaded concept that is the nation of Zimbabwe in literature. And I spoke to Andrea Eames about her novel, The White Shadow, and about writing in general on Skype last week. Andrea Eames, welcome to Bookends. I'm delighted to have you. Happy to be here, thanks. Now, you were born in England, raised in Zimbabwe, lived in New Zealand, and now live in Austin, Texas. You're a rather international writer by the sounds <laughs> of it. Do you identify as a Zimbabwean writer, or, or do you just not attach a particular nation to your identity as a writer? I suppose since both of my books so far have been set in Zimbabwe, and that's where most of my writing seems to live, I do identify as a Zimbabwean because I have a lot to work out around that identity. I have a lot of questions and a lot of history to work through. And um, my family's third generation Zimbabwean, so that's I've got a bit of family history there too. Although I also very strongly connect to New Zealand. I spent my adult life there. It's the first place I had a job and went to college and got married and all those things. And I love Austin too, so I'm just basically very confused all the time. <laughs> Do you think it's important when people are writing work of a political nature, as it were, it, it's the author's nationality plays a part, or, or do you think it shouldn't shouldn't matter and the work should speak for itself? Well, I think if you're good enough, it shouldn't matter, and if you do enough research. For me, I would feel uncomfortable writing about political life of any country besides Zimbabwe. Um, even that one, I still am scared when I'm writing about Zimbabwe because I know I've been out of the country for 10 years and I need to get my facts right. So I take a lot of care in trying to do so. But I think so long as you are careful enough, it will be okay. Personally, that's the only country I feel comfortable delving into in that way. So it, it's interesting that, that growing up there and being a part of the turmoil that was happening there, you, you still feel like you didn't have all the facts or, or like you, you still have to be careful with the, the retelling of it. I remember you saying around the time that your first book came out, The Cry of the Go-Away Bird, that you had to make peace with the fact that you wouldn't be able to tell a, a story about Zimbabwe to everybody's satisfaction. Yeah, 
it's a Zimbabwe is a word with a built-in exclamation mark. You know, there's a lot of a lot of story that everyone knows about it. A lot of news reels. I mean, we certainly were aware of it, especially as the political situation worsened. But it's like in any country. If I had to rewrite the election process here in the states, even now that I'm living here and I've just been through the election, I would still struggle to get my facts straight because you know you live here. It's just it's background noise hmm. for the most part until it really interferes with your life. So it's even though I lived through all the political struggles of the the 90s and 2000s, I was also busy with my own life, being a kid, going to school, passing exams, going to high school, getting crushes, you know, all the um, detritus of life on top of it. So when I came to kind of scrabble through all the, the heap of history that I'd left behind, I found out a lot more than I'd known at the time I was living there. So that's been an interesting process. I think you're expected to be an expert on the place you come from. It's like, I'm sure you felt it when you travel overseas, people say, well, what's England like? You know, what are its primary exports? What's population? And all these things that when you're living there, you don't necessarily know because you live there. You're not terribly interested a lot of the time. And um, so when you move away, you find you have to sort of learn more about your country because of all the questions mm. and the contrast to the place that you're living now. So I certainly learned a lot more when I once I moved. That's definitely true. Um, although I'm from Australia originally. So it's, uh, it's been more... Um, needing to know a bit more about Australia because as you say when you grow up there you just take it for granted and it's it's yeah. just stuff you know about but I actually do know England's population because I had to pass the life in the UK test earlier this year. Oh did you? <laughs> uh, I never had to pass an actual written test on any of these things. <laughs> the cry of the go away bird uh, tells the story of um, a teenage girl Elise and her family and yes. what happens to them during um, Mugabe's coming to power. And, yeah. and and the effects of it. Was that novel autobiographical in any way? I'm sure you're sick of that question, but... <laughs> <laughs> um, well, it started out that way when I was writing it. It was part of my, my master's. And when I originally started the book, it was very autobiographical. But it became a novel as I was writing it because it sort of made it more universal. I could bring in other stories and other elements that I was interested in. So there's certainly moments in it that are taken directly from my life and the overall pattern of it is perhaps quite similar to the way I grew up but it is still very much a, a novel and the people in it are characters and they're not real people. It's very important to make that distinction isn't it? Yeah I, I don't know I, I'm careful to make the distinction because I don't want to lay claim to some of the experiences that I included in the book that are actually other people's experiences that I've woven in you know and stories that were about at the time and I, I don't want to kind of say it's all me I don't have James Frey moment with all of that. Oh yes. <laughs> Both your books, but mostly um, I've noticed in, in The White Shadow, which is your second book, have got quite a bit of Shona dialect in there. Now, the Shona people are the indigenous people of Zimbabwe? Yes, they're one of the indigenous populations. Was that language a part of your growing up in Zimbabwe? Was it in the mainstream or was it something that was just spoken very just in, in the villages or the tribes? Well, we had compulsory Shona lessons at school in elementary. And when I was growing up, well, we, had, we had servants and most you know, white kids would have a black nanny. And um, so you'd sort of learn the language when you were very small and then keep it up to some degree during school. Most people abandoned it in high school um, who weren't Shona speakers, native Shona speakers. But I've, I've always been really interested in it. I don't speak Shona fluently. I used to be relatively good at understanding most of it, but I have enough that I can sort of understand to a certain degree. And I just really like the sound of it. But I did have to do a lot of um, a lot of research and a lot of checking my words. <laughs> and um, I had the book read also by a, by a Shona lady who very kindly corrected some of my bad grammar. It is a beautiful language. It's very musical and very, very oral. 
Yes, and it's um, only very recently a written language. So you're right, it is very oral and very phonetic. I mean, the way it's written on the page is very much how it sounds. Every syllable is sounded out. I'm going to talk a little bit about your book, The White Shadow, now. There's so many things I like about it. So first of all, congratulations. It's a wonderful book. And I, for the last third of it, I just couldn't put it down. So poor Tom was kept up till one o'clock while I <laughs> insisted on staying awake to read the rest of it. Thank you. That's very nice. So it's, it's a wonderful book. What, what I enjoyed a, a great deal about The White Shadow is that it's, even though it is set during an actual period of um, political upheaval in Zimbabwe, what I liked about it was that it had such a magic realism feel about it. So the, the Shona people have a very spiritual understanding of, of the world and, and you brought a lot of that in with all the... Uh, witch doctors and the um, talking to the spirits. Uh, when Hajvane is born, it's almost she's of the spirit world from day one. So is this a particular interest of yours, the, the Shona spirit world? Yes, definitely. And I always felt very conscious of it growing up and very connected to the landscape. It's something that I started kind of exploring a little bit in the Cry of the Go Away Bird. There were a, a few elements that were a little uh, bit where she um, at least sees the, the spirits when she falls down in in the garden and you know there's just a few little odds and ends and then I wanted to really expand upon that in the white shadow the thing that sparked it was this idea of the mwea and the nyama the um the parts of the soul and what happens to you after you die and the book kind of grew out of that so Tanashi is the narrator of the white shadow and he is very much uh, charged with being his sister's keeper, as it were. And I think one of the really interesting things about the story is that he's constantly told to look after his sister, and yet she's clearly the the leader of the two. And if anything, yeah. he's the one who's just relegated to the sidelines. I mean, if anything, he's her shadow, and it's a, it's a very unhealthy relationship because <laughs> the, the poor guy just has to sacrifice a great deal to to keep her safe. Yeah, and it's not a very typical relationship as well for the gender roles at the time, even now to some degree. The son would be the more lauded and, you know, the one that's concentrated on by the parents, but there's a bit of a reversal of roles in that family. Yes, I found your various representations of maleness really, really interesting. You explore different versions of the male identity. Um, Is is this um, particular to the Shona tradition or or is it a, a Zimbabwean thing or is it just maleness as a whole, patriarchy? There's definitely ways in which it's manifested in the Shona culture that I found interesting, but it's fairly universal. And the types of maleness that I present in the book, I think, are also fairly universal. It's just that with your, you know, you have, you have cultural justifications for being the way that you are. That's, um, you know, something that sets you apart. But I think every culture has those justifications in one way or another. Mm. The way women are represented in The White Shadow is very interesting as well because obviously it's being told from the point of view of a male protagonist, a, a, a quite naive and trusting teenage male protagonist who's very influenced by what the, the older his older male role models think. But there were some really, really interesting passages in The White Shadow. In fact, Chapter 10 opens with the line, women were dangerous, everyone knew that. It was as much a fact as the wetness of water or the heat of the sun. And Hajvine seems to absolutely epitomise everything that these men think is wrong with women. Yeah, I think they're, they're threatened by women who try to 
stretch out of the roles that have been prescribed for them. And particularly, um, there's kind of a belief that women who are very beautiful or exceptional in some way are bound to be witches or bad. And that's kind of a protection on the part of the men, I think, to put them in that, um, in that role. To keep them in their place. Yeah. Now, I really enjoyed the magic element, as it were. I don't know if magic's the right word, but I really enjoyed the, you know, the witch doctor element of the story and the witch smeller as well could you perhaps you could tell the the listeners a bit about those roles I mean I I take it they they actually do exist in a a Shona community um yes yeah they they definitely um they definitely do the witch doctor or the nanga is a bit of a a staple in um, Shona culture and um, most villages will will have one of some kind I mean they vary from the very um like you know the very traditional witch doctor that I have in the village at the beginning to the town witch doctor that Tanashi consults at the end, who kind of just lives in a normal house and wears jeans, but still, you know, communes with the spirits. And it's still very much part of Zimbabwean life. The country's largely Christian, but it's kind of bound up with traditional beliefs, and people will still consult the witch doctor, and you still see stories about curses and things in the newspaper. So it's not going anywhere anytime soon. Um, the witch smeller is usually, in, in my book, it's um, a role that was taken by a man because... I sort of wanted to make a point about, again, the, the gender roles and how men felt about Hajvine, but it was generally older women um, who would sniff out the witches in the village. So men could be witch doctors, use their powers, and um, that's you know perfectly acceptable. But a woman with the same powers is generally going to be treated as a witch, and you know, that's a bad thing, something that's damaging to the community and dangerous and needs to be removed. Hence why the community they, they live in with their parents seems to have quite a problem with Hajvine as a child. Yeah, she's different and strange and threatening. Have you ever been to a witch doctor before? <laughs> um, I've never been to one to consult or anything like that. <laughs> but I have met a witch doctor before and seen them in various incarnations in Zimbabwe. There was one um, a story in The Cry of the Go Away Bird that um, was taken from my experience where um, some ostriches went missing on the farm that my mum worked on and the witch doctor was called in to find out the culprit. So I got to see that happening, which is very interesting. <laughs> did he find the culprit? Um, yeah, he did. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty impressive. And was he wearing jeans or did he have a, a cloak and a, a magic stick? Uh, a combination of both. He had jeans and a necklace and a little cloak. So, you know, he was covering both bases, I guess. Uh, <laughs> Very interesting. Something else that I really like about The White Shadow is that all of your characters seem to be very responsible for for their own choices and you don't let them off lightly when when they have screwed up and they have made the wrong choice. Well, thank you. It's um, good to hear. I was trying to do that. Came across that way. Um, Because, I mean, Tanashi, I mean, I I adored him, but I, I also kept thinking oh man just go to the exam and pass it and don't worry about yeah. the witch doctor he could just be very passive at times but I suppose that his role while Hajvine was around was to simply be to protect her and to look out for her he was doing what um what his father and mother yeah wanted I think him he's to do someone who's bound up very much in other people's 
plans and ideas for him, even when he, I mean, he feels passionately about going to school, but then that becomes very entangled with Baba Makuru and what Baba Makuru wants. He's not someone who, until the very end of the book, I think, is free of other people's expectations. And that's, you know, in the final lines of the book is where he finally sort of manages to shake it off. And we don't realize, you know, we don't know what happens to him after that, but you do feel like he's standing on his own, or at least I hope you do. But up to that point, he's very kind of entangled in everybody else. I think a lot of us in um, in less extreme circumstances, um, albeit, could could feel um, empathy for him because we've all been tangled up in various familial obligations and we've also felt obligated to do what other people think we should do as opposed to what we really want. I think with the um, both books that I've written so far, both characters are kind of relatively passive but drawn into a very complicated dramatic scenario by circumstance Elise as well like she's just kind of I don't know if she makes a lot of choices in the book that propel the story she's more sort of caught up in the current and trying to stay afloat and now she's very much the same and I kind of feel like that maybe is a reflection of how I felt growing up in Zimbabwe you're very kind of subsumed into the overall drama of what's going on in a place like that um, it's something I'd like to try and move away from in the next book. I'm trying to have a bit more of an active character who, you know, determines her own destiny. But for me, that's very much my experience. And so I think that's why those two characters have been that way. Was it a coincidence that both The White Shadow and The Cry of the Go Away Bird had a teenage narrator? No, well, I mean, I didn't set out to do it. So I guess maybe it's slightly coincidental, but I feel most comfortable in a teenage voice. And the book I'm writing now is in a teenage voice as well. Maybe I've got some arrested development issues or something. <laughs> but that's where I feel like I am <laughs> mentally. I feel like I'm still in that very kind of tumultuous, confusing, emotional time of being a teenager. I don't really feel like I've got past that yet. So that's where I like to write because that still feels very real and present to me. Well, you've actually been writing uh, and publishing since you were a teenager. Uh, so your yeah. first book came out when you were 15? Um, I wrote it when I was 15. Uh, it came out when I was 18. But yes, it was um, sort of a, like I put everything that I enjoyed reading into a big pot and stirred it with a stick. And that's what it was. <laughs> I'm very fond of it, but it's certainly, um, I'm, I'm glad that I <laughs> moved on from that. That must have been an amazing experience, though, as a teenager. Yeah, it was cool to see it in print. Um, just in, in Zimbabwe is where it was published by Texpertise and distributed there. And I got to illustrate it as well, which was great fun. I really enjoyed that. And so then you moved to New Zealand... Yes. And decided to pursue writing more seriously there? For a while, I, I didn't do much writing when I got to New Zealand. I think I was, I didn't realize that I was a bit of a mess when I moved from Zimbabwe. At the time, I felt like I was doing fine. But looking back, I can see that I was not doing all that fine. Um, and it took me a few years to settle into New Zealand and to start processing what had happened. So I did my degree and I did a couple of um, writing courses in that. I didn't distinguish myself hugely in them. And then I worked as an editor for a publishing company for a while. But then the writing started jumping up and down at the back of my vision again. And I quit my job to um, to do this master's and to really concentrate on it. But it took me a good, I guess, three or four years of nothing, really, before I decided to pursue it. I think I needed that time. And so now you're 27. Yes. And you've published two novels. And your most recent one, The White Shadow, was shortlisted for the Dylan Thomas Prize. Yes. Tell us a little yeah. bit about that. Well, it was really unexpected and very exciting. So I didn't know about the Dylan Thomas Prize before I found out that I had been on, put on the long list for it. But it's um, 
So it's a prize for writers under 30, and it's open to any writer of that age uh, published um, in the English language. So it's pretty wide reaching. And the um, the prize is um, £30,000. So it's a pretty large literary prize. And there have been some really great people who, who've won it in the past. It's a, a yearly thing. And um, it's based in Swansea, Dylan Thomas's birthplace. So I was on the long list for this and very excited, but I, I really didn't think that I would go any further. And then a few weeks ago, I heard that I was on the short list, which was very exciting and uh, meant that I have to, had to fly at short notice over to Wales to um, take part in the Dylan Ed program before the ceremony. The other nominated authors and I had a week living together in a converted barn with a shared living space <laughs> and a couple of shared bathrooms. So we bonded. And it was kind of like living in a reality show. <laughs> we uh, traveled around to various schools in Swansea and talked to kids, talked to uh, people in master's programs, people in colleges, and uh, just really had a fantastic time for the week before the, the ceremony. And the winner um, was Maggie Shipstead. She's got an amazing book called Seating Arrangements. Very, very well deserved. She's an American writer. And so have you been pleased with the response to The White Shadow as a whole? Yes, Yes, I have. Um, I was completely terrified writing it and completely terrified when it came out. I think I actually hid under the duvet for a few days when it was released because it, I felt like I was free falling writing it because it was so, well, I sort of feel like you have to feel like that when you're writing. If you don't feel terrified of what you're doing, it's probably not very good. Um, I think you sort of need to be uncomfortable and off your guard and vulnerable to write anything worthwhile. But for that one, particularly because I was writing from a different gender and from a different culture, I was really scared that I wouldn't get it right and I would just offend everybody and it would be terrible and it would be a huge disaster. So I worked really, really hard on it and um, so I'm, I'm pleased that it's been received pretty well <laughs> after all my worrying. Um, from from reading your excellent blog quite regularly for the last few years, I get the impression that you're a very disciplined person when it comes to your work. But would you perhaps take the listeners through um, a typical day at work for you? Sure. The thing about writers is we don't have very good work stories because we're sort of sitting staring at a screen all day. Um, that's about as exciting as it gets. But for me, I get up at about five in the morning because I find that I work really well then before everyone else is up and the sun's up and things are happening. So I'll get up and have some coffee and breakfast and I'll work till about seven or so when my husband wakes up, um, do various things around the house, go for a run and then go back to work <laughs> um, for a few more hours. Um, I do all my writing of original material in the morning I find that I just burn out after about three or four hours of solid writing I, I can't do any more than that it just it doesn't happen so after lunch I switch over to doing some editing or something that's more mechanical and doesn't require such an emotional investment and um, I try to finish work at around five you know to keep it to a normal kind of work day as much as I can um, but I do normally have a gigantic nap in the middle of the day since I got up at five which I really enjoy and look forward to. So that's my lunch break <laughs> with the cats either side of me. <laughs> Do you have to set an alarm to get up that early or is that your natural body clock? I have two small furry alarms. Oh, of course. <laughs> yeah, they get very hungry now. I've sort of trained them to wake me up at five because they, they want to be fed. So they jump on my face and make a lot of noise and claw at the furniture. So it gets me up. <laughs> Do you find working at home can be a bit um, distracting at times? Like, do you find that you have to clean the house first or do you get distracted by piles of washing like I do? <laughs> I, I do, but I've been doing it for long enough now that I've sort of developed enough positive self-talk to ignore the washing to some degree. 
I have a, a really rigid house um, household schedule as well that I stick to. So the house is always, I'm a bit of a neat freak and the house is always tidy enough that I can concentrate on what I need to do. So that's a big part of my work day as well is doing the chores I need to do so that I can put them out of my mind. That's something I aspire to, definitely. Having a, <laughs> having a disciplined, organised household schedule, it would be very nice. And I've only got a small <laughs> flat to contend with, so how I'd cope with anything bigger, I don't know. How are you finding living in, in Austin? It's quite a big jump from Christchurch, New Zealand. It is a big jump. Um, I love Austin. I have nothing bad to say about Austin. It's great. I really, really love it. It's um, actually quite a lot like Zim, landscape-wise, sort of that yellow grass and the big sky and the heat and even some of the plants and insects are the same so I feel very at home here more than I did in the landscape surrounding Christchurch and the people are so friendly and it's a very accepting town I mean it's a slogan is keep Austin weird Um, (laughs) there's all kinds of strange people here which is great so I fit right in is there a big writing community there too um there are definitely lots of writers here don't, I don't think I've really plugged into the community so much. I have certainly got friends who are writers, but there's not that sense of, you know, all of us getting together at any point. Um, and again, I guess I'm only, since I'm published in the UK and, and Commonwealth and not in the States, um, I always feel a bit strange sort of toddling up to the um, US writers and sort of saying, yes, you know, I'm a writer. Uh, no, my book isn't here. <laughs> but they've all been very, very lovely when I have met them. Um, is, is that the aim to, to have your books available in the US eventually? Um, well, that would be lovely, and I would like it. We've, we've tried. No one's been terribly interested, so we'll see. Maybe a, at some point I'll write something that will appeal to the U.S. market, but so far that hasn't happened. And are, are they available in Zimbabwe as well, or, or as yes. you say? Oh, they are? Yes. What has been the reaction there? Um, I think it's relatively mixed. Some people really, really like them and, and re- relate to them. Other people feel that I shouldn't be writing about Zimbabwe because... I no longer live there and haven't been for 10 years. I'm quite careful to, to kind of always say that as well so people don't think I'm pretending to be a giant expert in Zimbabwe. I'm very much not. I just have my own experience and, and that's it. So there's, I can understand that point of view. Um, and of course, with the white shadow, um, because I'm white and writing from the perspective of a black Zimbabwean, uh, some people don't think that that is acceptable either. But then others are happy to see Zimbabwe being represented in novels and for it to be out there in the world. So it's, it's very... You know, it's a mixed bag. It sounds like it's a very loaded concept, as as you say, Zimbabwe with an exclamation point. Yeah, and there is that guilt there. I think as writers, you're always kind of uncovering skeletons, whether they be fictional or real. You know, that's kind of your job is to look beyond the surface and to dig things out. Exactly. And there's that little good little kid inside you who listens at the door to mum and dad arguing and doesn't want to tell the people about it. But then there's that compulsion to tell people. So there's always that conflict, I think, within us um, that we want to do both things. I'm trying to be less apologetic when I talk about things like that. I certainly had to come to terms with it with the white shadow. I just had to accept that it's my Zimbabwe too. You know, it's everyone's yes. Zimbabwe. There are as many different versions of it as there are people who live there. And this is, it's my story. And I just have to accept the criticism that comes, you know, good or bad. And it, it was a really good experience for me. And it's something that I think I'm going to have to keep relearning with every book, really. Because I can't, you know, you can't write books that, vanilla books that don't offend anyone or say anything that might possibly, uh, you know, offend one group or another. That's, that's not a, that's not a book. (laughs) I completely agree. Didn't J.K. Rowling say, in order for some people to love it, some people have got to hate it? It Sounds Um, like a very good piece of (laughs) I felt that you, as the writer, were completely absent from the book, if that makes sense. It was Tanashi's voice. Oh, good. (laughs) 
your race and colour and all the rest of it, it didn't even enter my mind. It was just this um, this young Zimbabwean Shona boy's story. Oh, that's um, brilliant. Mm. I'm very glad that it read that way. <laughs> it it certainly did. And, I mean, he he's a lovely character. But, yeah, like like I say, I just I felt so sorry for him. <laughs> um, it's funny how the, the book kind of came to be. I started writing, you know, of NaNoWriMo, National Novel Writing Month? Oh, yes. Yeah. So Tried and failed many that. times. <laughs> yeah. I know. I don't think I've ever properly finished it, but I really like it because it's a way to shut up your inner editor for a little while and to just write without any judgment or at least, you know, the attempt to not have judgment. And the white shadow began as an NaNoWriMo exercise. I just started writing something. I didn't know what it was going to be. And I wrote about 20,000 words in Tinashe's voice pretty much constantly for a few days. And um, it was really very clear to me and I could hear him, you know, very clearly in my head. And the book kind of grew out of that. So his voice was the first thing that, that came so I guess it makes sense that it would, you know, be the impression you take away from the book. It's so interesting how these things start, though, isn't it? I mean, so he just appeared, as it were. Yeah, I had no idea what I was. I was just, I just sat and did some free writing, and that's just it. Start. It actually, the first couple of chapters are pretty much word for word what I wrote then. So I don't think I've changed little, if anything, from that initial blurt of um, taking down dictation from the voice I heard. So it just. Um, kind of came out that way. And I did want to disappear in the book. Um, I felt like I had. I didn't feel like I was in it or interfering with it. And if I did ever feel like that, that I was starting to appear and to sort of twist things or to move characters around, if I could feel my own presence in the book, then I backtracked, deleted, and kept going from where I'd left off. I really didn't want to be present in it. I really liked some of the imagery in in the book. It's so evocative. All, all of the women um, in the copy where um, Tanashi and his family live... They all seem to have this sort of uh, clucking hen um, <laughs> image, just sort of, um, you know, waddling around and fussing, and that was very evocative. And Baba Makuru was a very well-painted character. Um, he actually reminded me a lot of the father in um, Adiche's Purple yes. Hibiscus. Oh, okay. I haven't read that yet. Oh, really? Well, Yeah, um, I really enjoyed Half of the Yellow Sun, though. That, that's one of my favourite books. I, I really love books about Africa for some reason. I've never been there, but it, <laughs> it captured my imagination as a as a child okay. um, and I've always wanted to go. Uh, my dad actually lived in Malawi when he was growing up. Oh, cool. That's a beautiful place. Yeah, Baba Makuru isn't as bad as the father in Purple Hibiscus. It's really quite um, heart-stopping, his cruelty yeah, in that book. But... The the difference in the names intrigued me. There was Baba Mukuru, who was the Tanashi's uncle, and then yes. Abel would refer to Tanashi's father as Baba Mudiki. Yeah, Mudiki, yeah, that's it. Yes, it's the way that the roles are assigned in the Shona language. So one's essentially big father, little father. So your your father's older brother is Baba Mukuru, which is you know the sort of larger father, and his younger brother would be a Baba Mudiki. That's so interesting. Same, uh, mothers, so my guru would be the older sister and my nini is the younger. <laughs> That's so interesting. It's a lot more organised than the way we have things, it's, it's... but there's more of a hierarchy within the family than, than we have in Western culture. Mm, definitely. Do you think you'll ever return to Zimbabwe? I don't know. I, I really don't. And I, I get asked that a lot and I never have a good answer. 
I should just come up with something <laughs> to say. <laughs> but I try to, you know, always answer very honestly. And um, just honestly, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it must have been so hard. I mean, as as you say, it would have taken quite a few years for what you experienced there to sort of sink in and, and deal with all of that. And yeah. uh, have things improved since you left or, or not yeah, really? To some degree. I mean, the power sharing is problematic. I know, a lot, I know a lot of people who have moved back. My cousins, some friends have moved back there now. It's just, I guess if I went back, I wouldn't really be going back because it's changed so much. It's a different country now. So I would be visiting somewhere that I really didn't know. So the Zimbabwe that I grew up in no longer exists. I would love to see the landscape again and, you know, the wildlife and see the people. It's just, I don't really know how it would feel. I'm a little bit scared about going back too, just because of the, you know, there's, there are some dangerous elements and I, I don't know. I, I feel a little uncomfortable going back there just to visit or be a tourist. It seems a bit inappropriate yeah, somehow. I can understand that. Yeah. If I was going to go back, I'd want to go back for some sort of for a reason. I don't know. So what does the future hold for you? You're working on your third book at the moment. I am, yeah. It looks like um, that one will be out in 2014. So I have a bit of time to work on it, which is nice. The other two took about two and a half years to write each, but they had a long lead time to the publication. So it meant they could you know, come out relatively quickly after one another. But this one's going to take a bit longer. So Ideally, I just like to keep writing full time. I mean, I'm very happy with my life as it is it, the way it is now, and uh, I just want to be able to continue. Uh, is your your third book is set in Zimbabwe as well? It is, yeah. It's set in the Eastern Highlands, so on the border of um, Mozambique. Is it um, a modern day story, or is it set in in the past? It is more, I guess, sort of '90s, early 2000s. So you know, more modern. But I guess that's becoming history very rapidly. <laughs> and it does have a teenage protagonist as well. It does. It has two. It's, um, I'm writing this one um, in third person and from a few different perspectives. So it's a different thing for me. The, the first two were first person, um, just a single narrator. So it's uh, a very different experience, but I'm enjoying it. I'm quite superstitious about what I'm writing because I find once I tell the story verbally, I, I kind of kill it. And I don't want to tell it in writing any longer. So I keep it quite close to my chest until I have a, something I'm relatively happy with. Oh, I understand. I'm a bit like that as well. Do you, um, do you not show drafts to people as well? Do you just keep it all very close until it's, you think it's good enough and then it goes um, to the agent? Or I do. My, my agent is lovely and sympathetic, and so I do give her chapters to read. And she's a bit of a cheerleader, which is great. <laughs> you need someone to egg you on and say, what comes next? Um, and my husband will read odds and ends of it. But mostly, yeah, I'll, I'll keep it to myself until I have something that is, you know, in bookish form. I'm hoping to be able to have something relatively soon to send to my agent, fingers crossed. Well, I'm sure everyone will be looking forward to the next novel from Andrea Eames. Thank you very much for joining me on Bookends. Thank you, Philippa. That was Andrea Eames, author of The White Shadow and The Cry of the Go-Away Bird, both published by Harville Secker. All the details of Andrea's books are on the Bookends website, bookendspodcast.wordpress.com, and also all the other books and authors we mentioned if you're interested. Next time, join me for a conversation with Scottish novelist Isla Dewar, where we discuss why a coffee machine is such a vital piece of equipment for a writer. That's next time on Bookends. Bye for now. Bye. 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 Bye.